Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. Welcome to Show Your Work. Yeah, we are sweating all of a sudden. Not complaining. Not complaining, but just saying. Uh, from parkas to tank tops in one podcast recording. That's how it is in Toronto. Like, last year it was from winter to summer. No it, spring. No, we don't do spring. We just go straight into, like, sweating, and then you go immediately back to snow pants when it decides it's over. We do the NBA finals, though. Yeah, there you go. I mean... <laughs> Listen, it's, what do we have, a two-night delay on this podcast? So it's true. What, what One game? night, actually. We're going up on Wednesday, and then the following night, the finals begin. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We are, we're here, anticipatory, you know. Or as some people outside of Toronto would say, the annoying Drake finals, which, listen, I don't think there's going to be a debate here. We're both from Toronto. You have loved Drake and supported Drake for a long time. Drake is going to do what Drake's going to do. I, you shouldn't doubt somebody who has the power to create memes so easily. And accidentally and intentionally. Yeah, all of the above. That's right. Don't be, don't be a grump. What do you make of people, of course, outside of Toronto who are like, um, he has a tattoo of Steph Curry's number. He has a tattoo of Kevin Durant's number. He... Follows every team, all the time, all the teams. Uh, answer, Duanna, please. Yes, and? Like, I don't understand. It, that sounds like whataboutism. Like, so you can't be a fan of, of one team because you're a fan of others? Like, this is his hometown. Yes. This is, and like, it's not like he just bandwagon jumped. His whole career has been about this town. Like, everything from... He gave it a name. He gave it a fucking name. <laughs> like, a name no one was calling it before. No. Um, yeah, the six did not exist, no. by the way. Dear people outside of Toronto, we did not call Toronto the six until 2013. And also, the reason it's so perfect, here's a little Toronto lore. So, what it came from was the original Toronto area code, 416. When the area code got too big, then newer people to the city or newer phone numbers got 647, which was seen as like a a less (laughs) desirable area code, right? Um, But the beauty of the six is that it unites both area codes, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. So like in all things, he's annoyingly masterful. He is annoying. Sometimes. Sometimes, but so what? <laughs> like, I mean, you can't, yeah. so everybody awesome is sometimes annoying. I'm not going to trash him for his antics uh-uh. on the sidelines. I no. think, like, as I wrote, I think they're highly entertaining. He is an entertainer. 
Um, and I much prefer what he's doing over somebody who sits there and is like cool and wasting the seat. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. Like, let's get some attention and positive attention. And yes, yeah. absolutely. I know anybody who thinks that it's, I don't know, uncomely or something, it's like, this is my same philosophy about award shows as applies as applied to sports finals. Like, have a good time. If you're going to be courtside, you have to look like you're blowing your mind with joy being courtside. And if having a good time means massaging the coach's shoulders or yelling at the other team or heckling the other team and, you know, because here's the thing, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So if, we hope it doesn't happen, but if the Raptors are losing and he's jawing at whoever, like, he's going to have to eat it. He knows this. He knows this better than anybody else. Sure, but, like, it's not for nothing has he spent the last 10 years creating, like, We the North and the whole cult fandom that didn't exist around the Raptors. Like, he's, yeah, I think he can handle that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's where we are. We just mm -hmm. happen to be in Toronto. The <laughs> NBA playoffs and that huge spotlight is going to be on our city or is on our city right now and will be for the next two weeks. It's kind of cool. Thanks, Drake. Not mad at it. Yeah. I mean, not thanks, Drake. Obviously, the team made this happen, but the big spotlight or the growing spotlight on Toronto has been over the last decade due in large part to him. Because nobody knew what the hell Toronto was uh, until... Yeah, Drake and Raptors and Handmaid's Tale and uh, some other exports. But That's right. Yeah. So before we get started, I want to do a little housekeeping. Yes. So we are wrapping up the season of Show Your Work. Uh, we are going to be bringing you the season finale. But before that happens, I need to get on your ass publicly about things that you said you would watch that you haven't watched. I, first of all… uh. I have been making my way through The Americans. I appreciate that. I've just finished season four, so I don't know what, like, I'm doing my shit. Okay, but look, no, and this is a philosophical conversation. Don't roll your eyes at me. I'm allowed to have opinions about this. Look, here's the thing about making your way through a long series. I respect that it takes a lot of time. I respect that, you know, there are other things that need to be seen in between and so forth. But there are a couple of things I've been nattering at you about that really need your time and attention that are short. Fine. Fine. Point the first, I showed Sasha maybe 45 seconds of Pen15 on Friday night. She cried with laughter. It could not be more up your alley. It's only eight half hours. Maybe it's 10. You need to get to pen 15. Fine. I will do one episode of Americans followed by some pen 15. Fine. That's fine. Um, and anybody out there who's listening, you also need to watch pen 15, although I'm sure you did because uh, we, wonderful as though this country is, uh, we were a little behind. It released on Hulu first. Secondly, and this I know that has to have been annoying you because it's all over social media. But you are such a huge Killing Eve fan. Yes. Fleabag, I know. Yeah, but it's not like I know. It's I fine. know. I mean, people have been writing to us 
nonstop. Every day I get at least three or four tweets. Wait, really? About ha- Fleabag. Have yes. you been keeping the Fleabag mail away from me because you know that I'm going to be yelling at you? No, I don't <gasps> think people are emailing you about Fleabag because they probably are like, oh, Duanna watches everything, so she's watching Fleabag, so it's Lainey I have to get on. I you got it. You have been stuffing our Fleabag mail under the rug. I We've been getting a lot of Fleabag mail. I will, yes, definitely get to Fleabag. I think I'm going to do Fleabag before Pen15. Sorry, but fuck you. I, uh, wait, how is that a fuck me? <laughs> I, well, in the order that you assigned this assignment. Well, I just, it's the order that would make a good narrative discussion because I knew that you were going to dig in here to Fleabag. How much Fleabag do I have to catch up on? You have two seasons of six episodes each, and that's all there is. And half hour each? Yep, and that's all there is. Great. Fleabag is two seasons and done. Fine. It's easy to do in a day, but you might want to let it resonate a bit. Great. I think I might have to hit pause on the Americans then because it's getting real hard. Like every three episodes or so, I yell at you at like, what the fuck did I just watch? Like, why are you? It's actually disturbing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We are dealing in biological warfare now. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, that's a good time. (sighs) Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I think I'm going to have a pause. It's summertime. I think I'm going to pause Americans for the summer. That's fine. The Americans will wait for you to be miserable. That's fine. Great. And for anybody who doesn't know the link between Killing Eve and Fleabag, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is the creator of both. I should say uh, Killing Eve, I believe, has some source material. But anyway, Phoebe Waller-Bridge wrote both for television, but uh, stars in Fleabag also. Great. But I'm getting overwhelmed. I'm just saying, I'm coming with you and saying I haven't done all of my Phoebe Waller-Bridge homework. But really, you need to be on Fleabag. Fine. Also, it's patio season. You know I like to do my shit on weekends. I sit outside on the patio and I read, 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 read. I would watch, 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 but my fucking iPad doesn't have like, you can't see anything in the sun. I, this is not an excuse. Get a patio umbrella and call me tomorrow. Ugh. This is not a problem. I, you, you've been saying this to me for years, but the glare thing, and I just, how do you do it in the sun? And I don't sit under umbrellas. The whole point is to bake then come inside and watch. I'm not going to fix your life for you. You don't have to do I'm it. I'm not outside. wasting a sunny Saturday inside. Then come inside and watch it at night. Ugh. Anyway. I'm These are short, short seasons. I expect you to have made some progress before our season finale next week. Fine. Fine. Can we move on now? Fine. Fine. Let's talk about Seth Rogen. Fine. <laughs> um, Seth Rogen... Coming strong with like a GQ cover that is, the interview at least, is all show your work. But can we just start with a, the Seth Rogen glow up thing? Yeah. So people have been saying since the press began uh, for the long shot, uh, like, oh, Seth Rogen is a snack. Oh, I never knew. And I hate to be this person being like, I knew. Um, Oh, no. You are going to be this person. I'm not really. But like, what are you? No, no, you can't have it both ways. You can't make fun of me for liking, like, hairy people with beards. Remember a few weeks ago, you were like, ugh, chest hair. And then you can't <laughs> then, at the same time, be like, oh, as if you've always known about Seth Rogen. Dude, but honestly, as if you've always known about Seth Rogen. He's, okay, can we just, like, we don't always do this. He's got curly hair, nerd glasses, and a beard. And chest hair. Who does that sound like? 
Oh, who does it sound like? Uh, my husband before he was bald. <laughs> I never knew your husband with hair. Sorry. Fair enough. But everything else applies here. Seth Rogen. Um, I'm just saying I knew. Uh, that's it. That's your last know-it-all yes. for the podcast. I'm done now. Go on. It's also his styling. It's like, real good. Really good. I mentioned, I was like, what is Seth Rogen doing with all these nice clothes in April when he and Charlie Theron went to CinemaCon to promote Longshot and he was wearing a really great suit with a flower print jacket, uh, sorry, a flower print shirt underneath and like brown brogues and I was I was like, hello, Seth Rogen. Where is the styling coming from? So it's for sure like whatever. Your, it was always there, but the clothes weren't always the there. The clothes weren't always there, and there's a style factor. Uh, obviously, he looks like he's feeling healthy and good about himself. He also has never had uh, a spread like this before. Like, I don't think yeah. Seth Rogen's ever been in... Invited by GQ to do I don't think he's ever been shoot. invited by, like, Entertainment Weekly, let alone GQ, to do a fashion spread. What's yeah. your favorite shot? My favorite shot is probably the Orange is the New Black shot, where, I mean, I don't think he's intentionally in a prison jumpsuit, but it kind of looks like a prison jumpsuit. With the gold bracelet? Yeah. Okay. With the gold bracelet and like the tinted sunglasses and he's looking off and the, and the umbrella in the distance matches. Right. That's my fave. What okay. about you? Uh, my favorite is uh, the kind of green and white tie-dyed pleated pants uh, with a shirt that the credits say is $4,100 for a t-shirt. <laughs> And he's wearing kind of smaller round glasses. And it almost seems to me, speaking of Canadians and, and similes, like it almost seems like he's doing a Jason Priestley impression from 90210. A little bit slash Miami Vice. Yeah. And there's a real old school umbrella. This is my favorite. I Those pants and shoes and everything happening here are really working it's, for me. It's those like pointy toe kind of gangster shoes. Creepers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he looks great. And he also doesn't look uncomfortable. No, he's really leaning into this like thing of being like, yeah, I can be a sex symbol. I can be, you know, a A fashion star, a thinking woman sex symbol. Like now I want to see, now I want to see Seth Rogen at the Met Gala. I mean, you said it. Let's make it happen. Right? Would he show though is the thing. Like, can you see Seth Rogen handing Anna Wintour a joint? Because you know he's not going to play it straight. No. no pun intended. I think I I can. I can see him handing uh, Anna Wintour a joint. And there are things that he says in this interview that I can use to support that statement. May I live to see Seth Rogen and Anna Wintour sharing a joint? Yeah. That's and, all I want. Like, that's what I want for my birthday. That's yes. it. And like a Pineapple Express style Polaroid, right? Like, that's the photo. Not, you know, a photo booth photo, but like a Polaroid, Pineapple Express kind of like headshot, eyes. They can even wear sunglasses and just like 
all kinds of smoke around. I'll do you one better. What if the theme next year was Pineapple Express? Or stoner culture. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like Pineapple Express, not the movie, but yeah. the concept. The Yeah. Love it. Right? And of course, Seth would have to be one of the co-chairs. Absolutely. <laughs> oh my God. May, me, may we magic this into being? Costume Institute, we've just given you your next idea. Get on it. Thank you very much. Um, all right. So Seth Rogen is hot. Glow up. Achieved. Congratulations. Does he read 37 to you? Uh, no, uh, I think he reads older. Like I always assumed that Seth Rogen, um, was my age, which of course he is. And I don't know why I'm saying this. Uh, clearly we're the exact same age. No, I, I always assumed that Seth Rogen was early forties, 41, 42. Right. When I read 37 here, I was like, oh yeah, Seth Rogen's only 37. Right. Um, I actually, I should admit that I did cheat. There's a reference here, and I hope I'm not jumping ahead of you, to some stand-up that he did as a Mm 13-year-old, which is still on YouTube. And so I clicked through and watched it, and I'm all excited. And then it says, Seth Rogen, 1994. I'm like, excuse me, 94? (laughs) Um, But yeah, so it makes sense. Um, He's got a body of work for 37. He's basically Beyonce and Britney's age. If it's 1981, He was born in the exact same year as Beyonce and Britney, which is one of your favorite factoids, which you passed on to me, and now it's my favorite factoid, that Britney and Beyonce are the same age. Three months apart. Yeah. Seth Rogen as well. Right. Um, So, yeah, he doesn't read 37 to me. But now that, like, I'm being reminded that he's 37, this sweet spot in his career, which is why we're putting him first, why we're talking about him today, and his stage of work and where he's going. It makes sense. Like we are, we are going with Seth. We were traveling along with Seth as he approaches his forties and he's built an amazing, as you said, body of work, but he's kind of transitioning a little bit. He's taking on, like, I mean, he's still smoking weed every day as he says, but there's a little bit more boss coming on. Yeah. A lot of, and I want to Point one thing out. So this GQ article is, would you say it's fair to say this is the first long form profile of this type of Seth Rogen? Yes. Right? There have been pieces, uh, pieces of this interview mm-hmm. have been replicated mm-hmm. elsewhere, but this is the first long form sort of full story, right? It is. And like to your point earlier, it's the kind of piece that we would maybe typically read in The Hollywood Reporter or Variety, mm-hmm. but It's in GQ now, so it's doing more than one thing. Right. And so what I want to say, and I want to come back to this, but in this profile, which is as long as you expect a cover story to be, um, over and over and over again, it's not Seth Rogen's career. It's Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Yes. Who is his producing partner, writing partner. Best friend. Best friend of 20-odd years, uh, probably more than 20. Um. And I just want to point that out because I want to come back to it. But Mm -hmm. every single place where we say his career, the difference only is that Seth Rogen appears on camera. Evan Goldberg largely does not. Yeah. Um, But they're otherwise doing everything together. That's right. Full stop. Full stop. And I think more and more we're seeing these kinds of partnerships. I guess over the last 10 to 15 years, these kinds of dual partnerships have really moved into the forefront in the business, like 
listen, back in the day, it was the auteur, right? One usually singular man with a vision and a camera, and he tell this story. And we're seeing so many creative partnerships become like an organism in and of itself, and they can auteur shit together. Well, yes, you're right. There are um, so many examples. I think of like an early reference was uh, Doll and M. Do you remember that show? It was uh, Emily Mortimer and her writing partner, and it was sort of about the crux of, of you know, what it's like yeah. when one of you is famous and one is not. Yeah. Um, obviously, like Benioff and Weiss, yeah. obviously… Uh, Ilana and… Uh, Ilana Glazer. And Abby Jacobson. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, people who create together in an ongoing way. And I think it's a really… It's the thing that I took most out of this profile and it's the thing that I kind of… It's a, it's a philosophical question. Right? If Seth Rogen hadn't met Evan Goldberg, would he be Seth Rogen? Yeah. And if and if Evan Goldberg didn't have Seth Rogen, would Evan Goldberg have been able to come this far? Right. So Seth Rogen says no. Um, I did hear him on the Dax Shepard podcast, yeah. and he says in so many words that basically finding another person who shares your sensibility when you're 13 or 14 is a game changer. And that for years and years and years, and you're going to love this shit, that they were basically making stuff for each other. Mm -hmm. Um, That the movies that they made after, so the story of Seth got Freaks and Geeks, that was just a year, but that was sort of the entree to Hollywood, blah, blah, blah. The movies that they made after that, Superbad and Pineapple Express and something else that I'm forgetting in the middle – were ideas that they had come up with literally in high school. Yeah. So I kind of sit here and go, that's amazing. It's huge. You can see all the reasons why it's a positive, right? Like a writing partnership is huge. You have somebody else to run ideas off. You're not lonely. You have, um, you know, you can tag team all these kinds of things. But I kept thinking about you and what you would say about the real world application. How do you, what do you do if your, like, life partner, essentially, um, Rogan and Goldberg are both married, but uh, he met, uh, Rogan met Goldberg before either of them met their wives. Yeah. What do you do if your life partner doesn't appear in grade eight? Like, how do you find this kind of a partnership or, you know, or, or emulate this kind of success that they've been able to have because they keep each other so much on the, like, on the focus of what they're supposed to be doing. Well, I guess, I mean, the first thing that came to mind when you asked me about this and the real world application is, like, you know my whole fucking jam right now is co-leadership and the co-leadership model. Mm -hmm. And some organizations are now starting to appoint co-CEOs. If you think about it, it like it makes sense. It's a big fucking job. Huge. And when we talk about loneliness, there's also professional loneliness. Like all that pressure for the head of an organization. When you have someone to share it with, and obviously responsibilities are divided, portfolios can be divided, but both people have, both senior people have like an equal title. They are accountable to each other. It can be healthy competition. Um, It really makes business sense. And there are, like, 
there is scholarship to back this up now. There are studies like Wharton, Harvard, they're all doing all these studies. And interestingly enough, in the wake of Kevin Sujahara's dismissal at Warner Brothers, what they've done is that they've named interim co-heads of the studio, two people to report to John Stankey, the CEO of Warner Media, and those two people are Toby Emmerich and Peter Roth. So these two individuals will be, they're calling it interim, but you have to think that if they do well together, it's kind of an experiment. And I think that, as you say, it's been an experiment that's been ongoing. But what happens often, and the case that you cite is interesting because neither of those names is overly more well-known than the other, what happens often is that one person is seen as the head and the other person is like, oh, they are their assistant or they work with them. Uh, I'm thinking about Shonda Rhimes and Betsy Beers. Uh, Betsy Beers co-runs Shondaland, especially in as much as Shonda Rhimes is required in so many places at so many times. Uh, And those are different jobs, but they're not, one is not more important than the other. They both need to exist for Shondaland to run. Yeah. So um, yeah, I love that entertainment may be one of the industries at the forefront of this. I think it's really great. And And yet it's that thing where I bet if you ask all of those people, they didn't set out to find or have a partner, right? Right. It's a person that you work really, really well Mm -hmm. with that then you're like, let's not let this go. Let's ride along. Well, and I know that there are some people out there who might think, is it realistic? Like, you know, decision-making and all of that. But I do think especially in a creative space, and if it can happen in a creative space, there's no reason why it can't happen in other industries, that yeah, the decision can't be up to two people. Like think about all these films that are being co-directed now. Like the Russo brothers just co-directed all these Avengers movies, and it's like a big-ass like franchise. And when you think about the director or a director on a set, now you're answering to two people or two people are running the show. But somehow, clearly at work, the Wachowskis have been directing their movies. Like, for how long? I mean, the Matrix franchise alone was a Wachowskis thing. So I think it's an, like, I think it's a really interesting and innovative business model I'm super looking forward to like the like more academic and more studies that are coming out of like what what works about it, what the downsides are, what makes it effective. But, you know, to go back to your original question about real world application, I think it's definitely something more people have to consider. Yeah, and not being afraid of it when it presents itself, I think. I mean, uh one case in point is that you and I are sitting here some 14 years after our first phone conversation. Yep. Um, and I guess being willing, like a marriage, like any partnership, for things to go through uh, different shifts and ebbs and flows and so forth, it can also be really freeing. When I was uh, an executive producer on a project relatively recently, uh, the director, who was also an executive producer, and I were in partnership and had very clear and distinct roles, but we, you know, we correlated our decisions with one another. It doesn't mean that you have to go around to everything together and that everything takes twice as long for those meetings, but it means that everybody's decision is as important Mm -hmm. as the others. I think it can be very exciting. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, the so to be open to the possibility is yeah. the one part of it. Uh, but to not assume the first person that you meet is going to be your business partner mm-hmm. is the other. Yeah. And I also think that where like failure is concerned, it's an interesting experience. Um, Seth talks in this interview uh, with GQ about the failure of Green Hornet, which he and Evan wrote, he starred in. It was, I mean, to his point, given like failure, failed superhero movies, it doesn't even rank. Like, I don't know that anyone off the top of their head comes up with Green Hornet, Seth Rogen's bomb, um, on a list of like, hey, name like superhero movies that have tanked. No, not anymore. And yet for them, they felt it as a failure. He speaks about it as a failure, as like having to reset. And what he says is, well, we just went back to work. And when you have someone to go back to work with, maybe that like funk phase after you stumble and fall and like things suck for a while either isn't as long or even if it's painful, it's shared. Well, you get to agree not to both have a bad day on the same day, right? Like you can share that pain, as you say, and it doesn't mean that one of you leads the other or vice versa, but that… Yeah. You know, that there's, you get to share it and go back and forth on on what that looks like. But that experience leads him to his revelation, which he said before in interviews, but I quite like this idea, this, this again, I say this word sweet spot that he and Evan Goldberg have li- really landed on, which is like, they make the 30 to $50 million picture. You know, they had the $150 million picture in Green Hornet, that pressure, those eyeballs, didn't work for them. And they're like, hey, we realize like when we make the kinds of movies we make, which is not small budget, like we're not talking indie here. It's not a micro budget. No, No. it's a studio picture. It's still a studio picture, but it's 30 to 50 million. And they're left alone essentially because it's an investment, but not big enough where every day they're getting phone calls from the executives being like, how are you spending our money? Uh, We need to know what's going on. What decisions are you making? No, like with that kind of money which is, yes, an investment, but it's not that big of an investment, they can pretty much follow through on the shit they want to do. Well, what I love that he said, and we had a big, like, T-shirt last week that you loved, and this one is going to be a big T-shirt for me, is he said, aim not to be that studio boss's biggest problem and you're sailing. Yeah. If you are doing X while they're all freaking out and worrying about Y, Mm -hmm. you are in great shape to get to do what you want to do. And I think that also speaks to kind of keeping to where you want to be. You know, I think there's probably a world in which uh, Rogan and Goldberg, who also co-direct sometimes, um, were offered like bigger superhero movies or franchises or whatever. Uh, you know, we don't hear about all the people who turn things down or like no yeah. thanks or whatnot. Maybe they were asked to polish up solo. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, but they want to live where they know they can thrive. And I find that to be so smart. Well, I also find it in especially that industry to be kind of radical because let's face it, in the model of Hollywood that most of us assume we know, the goal is to be the one with all the eyeballs on you, right? The big movie star. Everybody shows up, especially if you're a performer, and you want to be a movie star. But what they're saying, the 
sort of artistic equivalent here is I don't have to be the big-ass movie star. Like, I can be a person who just works steadily all the time at really great projects and still have good work under my belt, be creatively challenged, be compensated well, but I just don't have to be like the studio guy, you know, the the pinup. Well, and in fact, Rogan says he doesn't want to be. Like, he prefers not to be in things that he's not producing because he doesn't know how it's going to turn out. And he's very clear to make exceptions for, you know, incredible yeah. people he'd work with. But kind of going, no, I know how to manage my product, which is me and us, essentially. Yeah. And I feel most comfortable there. Yeah, it's a lack of ego, right? It's a lack of hubris. Which then brings me all the way around to where we started this podcast. And, you know, we spoke a little bit about this with Michael last week. And I sometimes wonder if this is my own issue. But I listened to that saying, I don't need to be the big studio guy. And I like where we are. And I'm happy with the control that we have. And I say, sorry. But I wonder, is that uniquely Canadian? Is that what that is? Hmm. Well, I mean, if we're going to bring things all the way back around, it wasn't, I mean, it's not what Drake is. <laughs> no, it's not what Drake is at all. Right? So, I mean, he is like, give me the light. Put all the lights on me. Right. And to extrapolate, his thing was sort of, I and my Canadianness and my Toronto-ness are deserving of the light. Right. Um, which that is not a Canadian ethos that we're brought up with, right? Mm -hmm. I think that is a certain assumption. I think that now, like, people like Drake are showing us, like, hey, we don't have to be that. Like, we can kind of take credit and pat ourselves on the back and be, like, ambitious and have that ego. And still, that can be Canadian, too. Like, I, I mean, it's two different ways. Well, that's it. Because I don't think that Seth Rogen is hiding his light under a bushel no. or anything of the kind. I think he's really happy and very confident doing and being what he is, right? Yeah. I agree. And yet, you know, towards the end of the piece, and this speaks to maybe the transition he may be finding himself in at 37 and moving on to different stages of and moving on to different stages of his career, he's like, "Listen, it's good to have a lane." And yet, as a creative person, being in a lane sometimes stifles you. And he cites Kanye West and all the different things that Kanye West is doing. And he's like, I need to start asking myself, like, what is the lane I can jump to? Do I want to jump into that lane or do I want to stay here? Like, he is starting to think about other lights to stand under. How about that? Well, and the elephant in the room that we also kind of started with is even as he says, I like producing, I'm really focused on what we're doing. He has a weed company because of course he does. Um, <laughs> it's a great name, Houseplant. It's a great name. Yeah. Um, and I also should say I really like the way that he talks about weed um, as something that is therapeutic for him as opposed to the idea that it's all consuming for everyone. But it's, yeah, he's saying I, I like producing, I like what we're making, I have all these sort of interests that do not involve me on camera. And it's all within a shoot in which he's, yeah, uh, objectively the most attractive and the most yep. well-styled that he's ever been. 
Um, and directors want to work with him. Like other directors cast him in things, yeah. right? So it's not like he's saying that because the phone's not ringing. On the contrary, I think people really enjoy his energy in a place that isn't traditional Seth Rogen films, right? So yeah, he's been kind of a, not an asterisk, if you will, for some time. Directors want to work with him and he's here could not look more like a leading man. He was in the Steve Jobs film and, you know, among others. So then what? Can you keep this sort of uh, groundedness? And again, not to ascribe too much humility or too much shyness to Canadianism or whatever, but can you stay in what has been working when it looks for all intents and purposes like your life is exploding? Well, I, I, I find that that's why I found this interview so fascinating and about as like candid as you get um, because he seems right now to have found that balance. Like, again, the third time I'm going to mention this word, a sweet spot. You know, he talks about losing out on auditions and he was like, I was so pissed. You know, there are other people getting jobs that I wasn't getting. But then he was like, but you know what? kind of the reason I was pissed was because they were actually better. And to be able to acknowledge that, like, this is a place of ego, right? Hollywood. You go there. It's, it's, it's a push and pull between having confidence and believing that you'd belong there and that you deserve it and that, you know, you can do this. And then the painful insecurity of that place, too, because everybody wants what you want. Um, and somehow he's found a way to sort of put that in perspective. And then… At another part in this interview, there's a flex that comes. Like, he takes a shot at Todd Phillips, mm-hmm. which I love. Right. I love. Like, I mean, what they're talking about is, and, you know, this is also another thing to unpack if we want to. He's talking about jokes. Jokes that don't age well. Mm-hmm. And being somebody who, you know, made jokes once upon a time that maybe now are not aging that's right. Say. Yeah. And there are two schools to this, right? You have the Jerry Seinfelds and the Chris Rocks who are like, comedy is comedy and people shouldn't be so sensitive and we're working our shit out. Such and such is objectively funny. That's right. And you have the Sarah Silvermans and the Seth Rogans who are like, yeah, I'm not telling jokes I told 10, 15 years ago because I've grown and audiences change and what's funny then isn't necessarily funny now. And what Seth is saying is that like, I just, you know, I want to make people laugh. And if somebody feels bad watching my movie, then that's not my goal. So I'm not there to make them feel bad, which is a really like really simple yet smart way to put it. Well, just to pause there for a second in what is apparently becoming our Seth Rogen masterclass. It's also, I think, something that all artists are grappling with right now. Every day there is a new criticism of this book comes off in this way that was written 10 years ago or this movie or this whatever. And to say so simply and eloquently, I don't want to make people feel bad. That's what I'm doing going forward. It's not an apology for every joke that has come before. No. Um, And it's not a an explanation that everything that has ever been written about him before has used the word sophomoric. Mm-hmm. It's just like, here's how I feel today. I yeah. don't want people to feel bad. Yeah. 
the end. But it's I'm just saying economy of words, which yes. I clearly do not share. Um, <laughs> just like it's as simple as that. Let's yeah. make people feel good. But here's the part that I'm referring to. Yes. He talks about, it's not fun to be in the theater when people are actually laughing at that, knowing what they're probably laughing at. And I don't want anyone to have that experience watching our movies. He laughed and, comedian's reflex, dashed off a throwaway zing. Quote, that's why Todd Phillips makes movies. Let him have that. That's a flex. Oh, yeah. And to flex like that, you have to have accumulated, in your words, a certain amount of capital in the industry, right? Mm-hmm. He's not going to say that. He's not going to say that, you know, when he was, like when he was 30, he's not going to be taking shots at Todd Phillips and the kind of humor that Todd Phillips puts in his movies. But Seth Rogen is Seth Rogen now at 37 with some perspective on who he was, where he's come from, and where he stands now, which is on the cover of GQ – in a glow up, you know, thinking about lanes, having a great writing partner, and they have been successful. Well, you know, that's not actually the flex that I thought you were going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, what I thought you were going to get to was him just saying, the only thing I have is to work hard. Uh, and he gives an example from when he was young that taught him the lesson, but like just sticking around, he says, and doing the work, even if you're the worst one there, will pay off because people fall away. And then you are suddenly the one who has done the most work. And again, if you run through this dude's IMDb, like it takes a while to scroll. Not all of it's good. Go on. No. I mean, I forgot he wrote on Ali G. Oh, yeah, sure. Like, but, like, all that. Any, like, not all of this is good. Not all of this is memorable. But it's all work. You're learning from things. For example, he plays a ship captain in Shrek the Third. Do you think that was, like, the feather in his cap for his resume? <laughs> nah. That's the flex to me. It's like, he can back it up. He has better jokes than Todd Phillips has. And yeah. he knows it and he's had them. It's like, oh, you don't have to because we have them better. Well, see, now that's not the flex I thought you were going to cite. Oh, here so we go. Here. <laughs> so clearly, uh, Seth Rogen is like dropping subtle flexes all over this interview. I love the part too where they're talking about how he was mentored by Judd Aptow. Mm hmm. And, um, you know, Judd Aptow, of course, uh, Freaks and Geeks, right? 40-year-old virgin and knocked up and Pineapple Express. And then now, like, Seth doesn't need Judd Apatow anymore. Seth is an entity of his own. He doesn't work only under the Apatow, like, umbrella. That's right. And so when the writer asks him, hey, what's it like to go from protege to competition, he gently and, as you said, economy of words succinctly says, no, we're peers. And I think that's really powerful to be a mentee and then to be an equal and to very matter of factly without having to be, without having to pay lip service to your mentor, without having to be like, Judd's given me so much. I just learned so much from him. And without Judd, he he bypasses all that because there's quiet confidence in having earned it. Oh, absolutely. And he just says, no, we're peers. No competition, just peers. Very powerful part, that part. And knowing that Judd or anybody else who reads that is going to go, yeah, well said, well done. Yeah. That said, 
I then have to go ahead and shout out the writer. Yeah. Uh, the writer is Caroline McCloskey because to include that line mm-hmm. implies that she herself is like, uh, is worthy of being chastised in that moment, right? right. It's a gentle correction as yeah. she writes. But she puts forward, when I said this, he corrected mm-hmm. me. And this is kind of the beauty of profile writing is… An art. It's a totally an it art. It should remain. Everybody in Hollywood, please save it. The point is, you know, she could have written a much more roundabout sentence to get to where he says that, Piers. But she puts herself on the chopping block. I mean, knowing academically that half the people don't even scroll up to see who wrote it. But she puts herself in the sacrificial position so that she can get off such a beautiful sentence like that and so that it can have that impact. So hats off to Caroline McCloskey. I don't think for a minute that he was actually chastising her or correcting her or whatever. I think it was part of a conversation. But she allows herself to look like she needs correction yeah. in order to let that sentence live. And it's it's beautiful. To give it its power. Yeah. Because it's very powerful what he's done here. You know, like we know, and he probably in his time um, has expressed gratitude towards Judd Apatow and his mentorship. But right now, where he is now, he doesn't need to put that in an interview. But he does need to say, yeah, we're peers now. That is really, really good. Yeah. And look, I know nothing about Judd Apatow. And I say that I don't know any gossip. It doesn't filter through to our ears, which means either that it's kept tight or that there isn't any. But I can't see anybody who raised up a generation the way Judd Apatow did reading that and being anything other than delighted. Delighted. I don't think Judd Apatow is like, how dare he didn't, like he wasn't grateful enough and he should have like kissed the ring in this interview and whatever and whatever. Absolutely not. Yeah. Nobody here needs to like Eastwood the situation. Like it's <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. No, yeah, nobody's nobody's hurt and crying. Yeah, you know this is so like fun and awesome and unexpected that I'm like dying to know what the five year work plan now for Seth Rogen is going to be. Well, here's the thing: this interview, this shoot, even the little video that they're promoing at the end. It is covered in confidence. And Seth Rogen has always been confident, but it now has just an air of not being self-conscious or not, yeah. uh, you know, not of of kind of snickering at the Hollywoodness of it all. Yeah. It's all very laid back. And so… And it's really like there's a swagger there in the sense of like, I produce TV shows, I write movies… I star in movies. I produce movies that I'm not necessarily in. I'm also, in a way, a star maker. Like, he's he's doing, you know, I can't remember the name right now, but this summer there's a movie coming out with Jacob Chamblay and two other young boys, and it's basically like, you know, the conceit is 10-year-olds saying fuck shit, whatever, and getting into trouble, and he's producing that. And it's going to be like a raunch comedy hit, um, like, Goldberg, Goldberg and Rogan Styles, and he's gonna make like stars out of these three boys. Jacob Tremblay is already, I guess, a star, but like this is this is representing Jacob Tremblay's next step, right? To yeah. go from like the kid in room to 
riding around on his bike with his two buddies, like saying fuck shit and whatever and like wanting to touch boobs. Well, if you're going to trust anybody to grow you up, yeah, it's going to be Seth Rogen, who you know is going to do it with kind of both charm and gentleness and also no flinching, right? Well, we've come around to Seth Rogen stepping into Judd Apatow's shoes because isn't that what Judd Apatow, the factory, all the people he spun off, um, did for Seth Rogen. So this is, when I talk about swagger, like he's doing a lot of things quietly. Like, you know, we talk about, we we throw like the word mogul around for fun and whatever. Like when we talk about, we've talked about, ugh, not one of my favorites, but like Marky Mark Wahlberg and how he was like underwear model, then became a very successful actor and then producer entourage and then produces movies and big movie star. And we're like, holy shit, Marky Mark became a mogul. Well, like Seth Rogen is arguably just as, if not more successful. And prolific and yes, going and is constantly, constantly working, producing, et cetera. Yeah. I think that it's been, I mean, maybe the term we, we've talked a little bit about terms and mogul. Maybe the term here is sleeper hit, right? Like Seth Rogen has been a sleeper hit all this time and has been much like his business ethos, working his way up into a powerful position while people were looking elsewhere so that they weren't concerned about it. And now he basically is able to take over the world. Good job, Seth Rogen. I just want to point out that when we see him next for press, it will probably be for The Lion King. He's <laughs> right. <laughs> He's Timon or Pumbaa? Pumbaa. <laughs> right, because Billy Eichner is Timon. Right. Right. So can he still? <laughs> Fuck, I love him. I love that. Of course. Do you think he's going to wear the $6,000 Gucci pants <laughs> to promote being Pumbaa? I can't fucking wait. You're like, I mean, and again, this is Seth Rogen. Like Pumbaa's most famous line is about farting. Yeah. Literally. Perfect casting. Right. So then the fact that yeah. he can be both is is amazing. And on this press tour, he's going to be answering questions about Beyonce. Like, and he's going to be great about it. Like, he is going to be the one who's going to be, but Billy and Seth are going to be the ones who are like, going to take the Beyonce questions and run with them and have the best time. You better get on that junket. Probably Seth Rogen hasn't, like, had no time with Beyonce. No, no. But, I, this is all voiceover. This yeah, is all whatever. But he's going to still have the best story. He's going to have the pull quote. You that's, know for sure. That's right. He's going to say he got Beyonce high, and she's going to be like, <laughs> yes, he did. She never touches it, but yes. she's going to be like, yeah, for totally. sure. Totally. Yeah. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Next, let's talk about hair. I mean, I always love to talk about hair. The work of hair. You love to talk about hair. Fucking love it. Um, Did you send this to me because you thought I was going to get angry and up on my high horse? No, I sent it to you because we briefly talked about it when we were talking about many podcasts ago, you nagging me to watch The Americans. and Oh, because I said there were wigs. Wigs and costume work, right? right. Like when right, it right, was right. close to ending, um, I think there was an interview with the costume designer mm-hmm. for the show, The sure. Americans, and like all the different looks that Elizabeth and Philip have to have in their spy disguises, doing their spy work. And since I'm pretty deep into the Americans now, like I've seen so many variations of hairstyles. And then when I came across this article today, The Hollywood Reporter, uh, the title is Juliana Margulies on wig advocacy, which I love, like a wig crusader she is now, and The Hot Zone's urgent appeal. But spoiler we're going to talk about wig advocacy. Yeah, we're not talking about the shows here. We're talking about the fact that she has emerged as apparently a um, advocate for wing- wigs. <laughs> so the reason that I thought you might think I was going to get all up in arms is because Juliana Margulies' wig advocate began as anti-curly hair bias. Yes. Right? Yes, frizziness and having to worry about styling it like mid-shoot. I saw you roll your eyes. So uh, Juliana Margulies comes up as Nurse Carol Hathaway, right? She wears her own curly hair, which is kind of fine, curly. You've seen it. You remember. She's so young. She's so pretty. Yeah. Uh, And then the story goes that she's going to – she's offered Alicia Florrick – uh, who is supposed to resemble the wife of Elliot Spitzer. And then the article says, and I roll my eyes heartily in this direction, but just stay with me. It says, problem is that Slida Wall Spitzer, that was Elliot Spitzer's wife, has straight hair, which the curly-haired Margulies found to be a challenge. Like, I'm just saying, uh, Alicia Florrick has, I guess, in the beginning, I guess in the pilot, you can say, okay, I see where they're drawing a line between Spitzer's wife and this fictional wife. But like, okay. Anyway, her argument back to the producers was interesting and compelling. Well, her argument was to straighten my hair, it takes a long time. Mm -hmm. And I have a baby Mm -hmm. and I don't want to have to come in two hours earlier for the stylist to have to straighten my hair every time we're shooting So why don't you just get me a straight wig? Then I don't have to come in so early. And the wig looks the same all the time. So we don't have to worry about continuity. Especially with curly hair, as we know. This is not always a problem that you you have. I don't. Uh, Humidity changes how your hair looks from hour to hour. Yes. I actually once saw an article, we'll try to find it for the show notes, about why all women on television tend to have the same hair which is that long hair only with curls at the ends. Mm -hmm. And it's because it lends itself really well to continuity. Those curls only at the bottom move around so nicely that if they're different from shot to shot, it doesn't feel like it's a a jump cut. Yep. Um, 
So, yeah. So she says, okay, really good wigs are expensive, but she says it would add up in the end. You know, it saves time and money. It saves, uh, like, hairstyling hours, etc. Continuity is easy. And then she said she became a wig advocate for the network. And she quotes, I forget the name of the show, but about two years later, after they had given me such a hard time, they called and said, there's an actress. We really want her to have a wig because most of the stuff is outside and with the weather, your hair changes, it's going to frizz out. The actress didn't want to wear a wig, so Margulies was asked to call her and explain how great it could be for her. Is that a expression of, like, are you, is this consternation on your face right now or? Well, here's the thing. The wig, Alicia Florek's wig. Did you watch The Good Wife? I can't remember. No, and I'm going to, like, yell at you if you make me. No, no, no. You don't need to watch The Good Wife. It's fine. You can watch any one episode of The Good Wife and kind of get it. Got um, it. Don't yell at me, people. I liked it too, but come on. Um, but the wig is widely considered to be not the best. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, it got a lot of, like, online flack, and that might have been conflated with the way people were feeling about Juliana Margulies on that show in that role in general. We've talked a bit about that. Yep. But I don't know if if the Alicia Florek wig is the advertisements for wigs. Okay, so what show is or what wig is the, like, gold standard of wigging? So great question. I don't know because… Mm-hmm. I don't know who's wearing a wig on TV. Right. Um, You know, like, I guess we only remember the bad ones. Uh, Rachel McAdams in Mean Girls had a notoriously terrible wig. Right. Remember that? Um, I'm trying to think of, obviously, all bald cap wigs are terrible. I'm trying to think of a great wig. Uh, I don't know if I know of one. I mean, look, we have to say that um, it is a known thing that many, many black women on television are wearing wigs or false hair pieces, Mm -hmm. and often those are really, really beautiful. Um, So I guess it's a mark of good wiggery that we don't know which ones are good. Well, I, you know, thanks for bringing that up because, like, for all of Juliana's concerns about, like, frizzing and curly hair and whatnot, like, black women have had, you know, these concerns all the time, like, in real life, like, going out when it's raining, right, when it's windy, all of that. I work with several black women. Like that is a concern. Um, and it's something I take for granted. Like my hair is, you know, for the most part, the fucking same. Like if I step out in the rain or not, like, and I've been here for an hour and a half and my hair has not just changed while we've been here. It's taken on like various different shapes. Mm -hmm. It's, it's got, it's like Lego and your hair just, is how it's going to be. It's amazing. Yeah. And I've also like yanked it up, pulled it down several times during our conversation and it just falls into the thing. That's right. Um, And so, yeah, it's until I started like working um, on in broadcast television with black women, it wasn't something that like was at the forefront of my mind in terms of continuity and maintenance when we were shooting, but it is a fucking thing. So, you know, I imagine black women reading this and being like, whatever, this is like, a concern we've dealt with for a long time, and here's our ways around it. I would like to know. I guess the only difference would be uh, that Juliana Margulies, the actress, makes a point later in this article of talking about how, at the end of the day, she didn't want to be Alicia Florek anymore, right? Like, part of taking off the wig was then being able to 
go back to her own. Shed the character. Yeah. Yeah. Go back to her own hair, her own life, and be her own self. So fair enough on that front. Um, Whereas, you know, I think, and I'm not super well-versed, but I think often black women have essentially a wardrobe of, of hair that they can work within or, or wear for a while. Um, but yeah, I, now I'm trying to think of like, like, what are we watching right now? Like on Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh yeah. I generally thought Daenerys's wigs were shit seasons one to eight, but I thought Sansa's wigs Mm -hmm. were awesome. Generally speaking, I thought Sansa's wigs were pretty good. Sure. Um, but I Cersei's were terrible. Yeah, like the but the short I mean, hair ones were no, no, no good. No, but they're also I I hesitate to think about Game of Thrones because it's out of time, right? Yeah. Like they're they're on the one hand, Daenerys's wigs are terrible, but on the other hand, it's like, well, she had white silver hair, and what yeah. do we know? We're not dealing thing? with realism when dragons are flying around and all that. No, I mean, you know what gets me every time is. The Saturday Night Live wigs are so good. And fast. They're super fast. You know, of course, that they can't all be perfect. But you can see often A.D. Bryant wears a lot of wigs. Cecily Strong wears a lot of wigs. And from five minutes, they'll be in a wig. And then they'll be in the hair that you know to be their own hair. Yeah. Or a beautiful facsimile of their own hair, except it's not that because guess what SNL is not paying for? A wig that looks like your own hair. No. Um... So that's some wig work, right? That's like, and like the quickness of it. Like, listen, I've worn a wig a couple times. Mm-hmm. That shit takes forever. Yeah. Like when she, when the Juliana was talking about saving time, I was like, bitch, what are you talking about? Because for me to get into a wig a couple of years ago, it was like a three hour process. It's a long, long time. Yeah. But the argument is once you're in it, it yeah. doesn't need touching up the same way. Yeah. It doesn't need to be splashed down. You could have doubles for a wig if you were going to be in a, you know, a scene where you got milkshake over your head yeah. or whatever. Um, that's expensive too. But, you know, it, it helps with things like that if that was a, a concern. But here's what I love. I'm going to go back to my interview with Sandra O. Oh. Well, I was going to um, ask you. Yeah, go on. I was going to go back to my interview with Sandra O oh and… And this goes back to, um, we're name checking uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge for the second time this podcast. But Sandra O oh says, um, and this didn't make it to air in our interview, um, but she, when I interviewed her, she was talking about like getting into a character and organically feeling out something and making, making a character and a setting and the environment like true to real life. And she's like, you know what? Most women with longer hair, as you and I have done several times tonight, we yank it up into a top knot. Five minutes later, it's out again. Uh, then we put it back up. Then maybe it's in like a half knot. Then maybe it's in a low ponytail. And all of this is over the course of an hour. Mm-hmm. And the way Sandra O oh plays Eve is she does that. Sometimes in the middle of a scene – She'll just be talking and she'll be like, this is what a real person would do. When she's like talking to her colleagues and she's figuring something out, she'll like put her hands in her hair, scrape her hair up into a bun and like look at the screen. And then like five minutes later, she'll take the hair down. Um, And so they don't worry as much about quote unquote continuity because real people, a lot of real people who have similar hair are doing that all the time anyway. 
And when you do it and you show it on screen just a couple of times, then viewers are just so used to that as being something recognizable. Yes, and curly hair is amazing in that the curly hair is a like an entity as a as a hair hole, right? Like it's harder to see a hair out of place. Yeah. Um but yes, it also speaks to Phoebe Waller-Bridge and everything she does is committing to showing women as they actually are, right? Yeah. Especially as women are when men are not watching. Yeah, and here's where like we're linking, of course, we don't have to explain this to everybody, but we're linking hair to work and storytelling. Like if you just make it part of the storytelling, your hair got frizzy, you're wearing it in a top knot because like, you know, fucking you're reading an article and then when you get up to go get a glass of water, you pull it back out again, then man, maybe you don't have to stress so much about like coming in and like fixing the hair and whatever when it's just literally part of the storytelling. Well, again, it is, and I had no intention of getting here, but allowing hair to be hair, hair for women who have long hair is not just a part of your wardrobe, but it's part of your way of being as much as wiggling your leg or picking your nose would be, yeah. right? It's it's something you touch that you interact with. And men, largely speaking, don't interact with their hair the same way, which is why whenever somebody who's a man, a traditional straight man on a show, which is why whenever a man on a show is interested in his hair or keeps it nice, it's like a joke, right? It's a punchline every time. Watch the hair, huh? Um, is kind hey, of a thing. Hey, watch the hair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we might have been doing the same character there or two totally different ones. It doesn't matter. Yeah, but I mean, it's common enough that it's recognizable. So I don't know. Like, listen, that is not to take away from the work, of course, of the hair artists and whatnot. You still need hair artists to like be doing hair. It's just that within the scenes... I don't know. I wonder if like the Phoebe Waller-Bridge way and the Sandra O oh way is maybe something we need to think about more. Where in a, like, you know, when you're on set and you're telling that story, the focus is to make it as real and recognizable as possible. And if that means moving the fucking hair around, great. Okay. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, we are coming to the end of our season and so there are some stories that we've saved or not been able to get to, uh, or that are just kind of parts of stories. And I've taken the liberty of starting this story with my favorite pilot season factoid, which is Veronica Mars returns on Hulu July 26th. And in the Veronica Mars writer's room is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> Yeah, just like live in this for a second? You're Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You're already literally a household brand name. And then you're like, you're a basketball legend. Yeah. And like a motivational speaker and whatever else. And you're like, you know what I would like to do is I think I'd like to get into TV writing in like on the revival of a underappreciated one-time teen show. Like, what is that? I don't know, but it's like when we talk about earlier, we were talking about Seth Rogen and jumping lanes. I mean, that's a fucking, not even just a one lane jump. That's actually maybe going across the median and joining a lane that's going in the opposite direction. Hemisphere. Yeah. And then I think about, we were talking about like Sandra Oh living as a person, putting her hair up and down. 
in the writer's room, we all do what you hate, which is like, we're all moving our limbs around all the time. People's legs are up on the table. They're down. People are standing, sitting, right. crouching. You're saying I hate that because I'm generally pretty still. With You're my still, limbs. and you get annoyed when I like family circus around right. the room. Right. Um, but can you imagine Kareem Abdul-Jabbar like trying to get his legs up on the table? <laughs> I I'm just so delighted by this. Um, but I bring this up because you brought this article to me for our last topic which is, uh, focuses on a real particular element inside the writer's room. Well, I have, I I mean, I think that it's, people know by this point, um, who listen regularly, I have fetishized the writer's room. Like it's, you've said it, I'm, every time you're in a new room, I'm always like, what's the room like? And, um, so this Vulture article was made for me, the secret lingo of the best TV writer's rooms. Like in immediately. I, I love this. And did it what this has turned out to be is lingo about scripts and writing, right? Like right. uh the way slang to refer to particular types of lines or jokes or what. Mm-hmm. Is that what you thought this was gonna be? Yes. And also like I'm naturally as like a person independent of my obsession with writers' rooms into code, speaking in code. For sure. Right? And it's a little bit of code. It's a little bit of here's our secret circle that um, we're giving you a sort of peek into, but you can't join. Um, and like, so it's a little secret society. Yeah. And what's super interesting about that is that some of these terms, many of them I know and have used in many rooms myself, some of them are exclusive to those rooms. And, um, Likewise, I've been in rooms where we've come up with our own terms that then become like part of the part of the language, which is that is kind of exciting. Yeah. And of course, another draw for me was like, I love blackish. So blackish is on here. Mm-hmm. Like each room has their own lingo, right? Just like every secret society has its own whatever, secret handshake, code word. And so, you know, I obviously ate up the blackish terminology, um, like the biggest crabs in Blackish is um, the executive producer, Jonathan Groff says, I imported this saying from my grandfather, eat the biggest crabs first. That way you're always eating the biggest crabs. When we're breaking stories and somebody will be like, why don't we save that idea for later in the season? I'll say, well, why don't we do it now? Let's just figure it out. Let's eat the biggest crabs first. Do the best idea right away instead of trying to save or forget about it. That's great life advice, period. The biggest crabs. It is great life advice. And that's the thing. I knew that uh, concept, we called it front-loading, which is not as pretty, or uh, one showrunner just stopped saying front-load it and would just make the gesture of pushing, like, Yeah. Um, but the biggest crabs is amazing. Is this biggest crabs? Let's biggest crab this. Yeah. Great. Like I might have to steal that. I, by all means. So I, in that case, like the executive producer came up with that. Like that's something that he introduced from his personal life and his personal history and like dropped it in. And now like everything's, everybody's adopted that. Is that usually how it goes? Often. Or it's a joke in the room that becomes a thing that is whatever, uh, an expression that I will not explain, but just for example, was we used to say on Degrassi that, uh, oh, that script got mitched. 
there was a Mitch situation. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yes. Um, so, so that's what I also love. It's all like a fucking inside jokes. It's all inside jokes. And even the ones that are really common to me here, you they must have come from somebody making a joke somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like I think on this podcast, we talked a few weeks ago about shoe leather, which means when you have somebody doing something physical – Elaine walks into the door, puts her mail on the table, and walks back to the door to answer it. It's too much physical action for the amount of dialogue that you have or just for people to watch, right? Right. Um, But somebody must have made that up somewhere. We're wasting shoe leather here. Like, that's a… That's funny. Well, that's… Are there common ones then? Like, is shoe leather recognizable from room to room to room? Yes. Shoe leather is a known thing. Um, what else is a known thing? That's what I'm getting at here. I need to know the secrets. Hat on a hat is a known thing. Yep. Um, otherwise known as joking the joke or uh, a friend of mine, but a friend of mine would call it goof troop, um, which is to say a hat on a hat is when you have a joke on a joke, when you're like adding silly to silly. Mm-hmm. Um, and goof troop, I never watched a frame of it, but apparently it was like, it's not just goofy, it's, it's full goof troop, right? right? So that kind of idea. Um, I'm trying to see what else here. So there are two here. Uh, one room refers to little booty, uh, which is script overhang onto the next page. And um, in the big mouth room, they call it fat boy. Uh, body shaming aside, the idea of writers are obsessive about scripts and pieces of dialogue specifically not going down to the next page. Right. Everybody uses the same screenwriting software. There's no way to cheat it. It's really annoying. So you will nickel and dime your words. Like you'll change plus to and because maybe if you have and instead of plus, it will take up less space, which will bring the dialogue up onto the previous page. I cannot tell you the number of times I've gone through scripts trying to save a line or save because it saves a page. And to the face you're giving me right now, yeah, I just think that that's ridiculous. Well, you asked me and Michael uh, when we spoke whether an extra U is really such an issue for people reading the script. And the answer is yes, whether it should or shouldn't be. We were talking about Canadian spelling. Yeah. Similarly, a script that is too long psychologically, will people will bitch and complain. If all your scripts on your show are 28 pages and the script goes on to page 29, even if it's only by a line or two, People will bitch and grump and complain 29 pages. And you want to say, oh, shut up. But when it's script number 15 of 22 and you have to keep everybody on, like, going on the train, you do what you can to keep everybody in, like, a healthy mind space. Oh, my God. Um, and, like, look. Maybe don't... that's what happened to the final season of Game of Thrones. They had to stick to 28 pages and cut out everything. Maybe. I mean, don't listen to me, but uh, I feel like I've heard something like five percenter, which is uh, a blackish term for a joke that only a small percentage of the audience will get. Um, That's a five percenter if you say goof troop, for example. Yeah. Right. Um, And then it's a choice about whether do you put it in and it's a little gift for the people who get it or do you go, no, we're going to leave 95 percent of our audience behind. So we shouldn't. You know what I like about this? There is shorthand in every workplace. Like, you know, I don't even want to think about the shorthand in like a tech workspace where, I don't know, they're dealing with like bits and bytes and right. me- megas Oh, I have one whatever. to ask you about. Go on. Um, and, you know, short term and lingo has even 
kind of seeped into mass public recognition, especially in entertainment um, in that everybody's getting more into reading about showrunners and reading about the like nuts and bolts of making entertainment. Whereas like in the past, you just went to see the movie. You didn't fucking read up on like the making of. So an example of this is in broadcast or in production, we say, we'll use an expression like, oh, don't worry about it. We'll fix it in post, which means like, you know, whatever kind of like color correction or editing needs to happen, you just fix it in post-production. When I'm writing now on the site, sometimes I'll just say, like, they'll probably fix it in post. Or um, after filming, they have six months of post, which means post-production. Right. And fix it in post is itself a bit of a joke because uh, the post guys are like, fuck you. We don't want to fix all your mistakes. Um, You know, so it's that kind of thing. I like the ones, too. So I heard one the other day. Um, What's interesting about this, too, is that everybody seems to say they don't like corporate lingo or work lingo, but everybody has it, right? Um, Whether it's specific to your work or whether it is – and also I would argue that fix it and post is something that everybody knows them, right? So I was reading one the other day, and it was, can't we just parking lot this? Mm. Do you know that expression? Yeah. What does that mean? I don't know that one. I think it's just, like, park something. Like, come back to it. Like, take it outside or just, like, leave it leave it somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Fair enough. Yeah. And you asked me about common ones. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine talks about the bad words version, um, which I've also heard bad pitch or shit pitch or right. whatever, right? Which I think crosses all kinds of borders. Yeah. You know, you want to say, it's not this, but yeah. what if an alien yeah. was trapped on a plane? Like, yeah. and that means here are the basic building blocks that I want to work with, but right. don't get attached to me saying alien, plane, yes. or trap. Yes. That kind of thing. You say that all the time when you're like, I don't know, I, once a week you'll like text me and you're like, it's not this, but, and you need some sort of reference or a name or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a very common thing in the room to kind of get your idea out and be safe to say bad pitch, but, or not this, but, meaning hear the broad strokes. Don't crucify me because yeah. I used an O in, or a U rather in the word color. Yeah. Um, like understand that I'm just working in, in big picture here. Yeah. And then everybody understands and kind of helps out. Um, I love workplace lingo. I'd love for all of you to send us what your workplace lingo oh, is. Oh, yes. Please, as we approach like the end of our season, we would love to read. You don't have to explain it. If you would like to, that'd be great. But send us like your own industry lingo. Yeah. And the ones that you think maybe are kind of universal and also the ones that are absolutely only going to work in your realm. Um, I will leave you with my favorite one from this list because there's an exception to it that proves the rule. Is it better than big crabbing? It's, um, uh, no, but it's, Schmuckbait. Have you heard this term? No. Schmuckbait means when you have something that only a schmuck is going to believe is going to happen, right? Right. So if, uh, remember that 90210 where Brandon is about to fall off a cliff and he's scrabbling? It's kind of schmuckbait because you know that the lead of the series is not going to fall to his death, right? Or season eight of Game of Thrones. <laughs> well, well, but that was actually my point. The, the ultimate 
subverting of Schmuckbait was actually season one, episode nine of Game of Thrones because they killed the main guy. Yeah. Which is why it was so great. Um, and famously, Joss Whedon wanted a version of the Buffy credits where they would kill the guy who gets killed in like act one. Right. So that people would be like, whoa, this is a dark show. They'll kill off their main guy. He couldn't afford it. But um, Schmuckbait uh, is, I think Schmuckbait could be used across the board. Yeah. Um, so Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, study up. I, like, I can't. I want to, I can't. So there's lots of homework uh, as we head into our season finale. Send us your lingo. Send us your lingo. Let us know whether you've watched Crashing or Fleabag or Pen15 or anything else that you want us to watch on our hiatus. There's What's lingo your big for crabbing? You. <laughs> what is your big crabbing? Tell us. <laughs> um, and we love your work stories in general. So please hit us up. We will definitely be reading your emails next week. Cannot wait to hear from you. Thank, Thank you. you. As, as always. As always, subscribe to us where you get your podcasts, leave comments and reviews, and send us your work anecdotes. Uh, we love, like, porning out on your work stories. We'll also accept pictures of stupid shit you do your hair at work. If you have a pencil or a cactus in your hair because you've been looking at spreadsheets, please send us along. We'll obscure your face and just let your hair have the glory. You know what I have is I have a pointy comb, like a comb with a metal like arm. Yeah. And it's pointy and I use it to poke my head. So if I have my hair in a top knot that it's already been styled and the stylist has gelled it, but I get an itch, then I use my pointy comb and I jab my head at the itch spot. Like one of those head massagers, but just one? Just like a one, like you're literally sticking a needle, but you know, not necessarily a needle, into the itch spot. And it is like the best technique. Try it out, everybody. Pointy comb to scratch an itch. On that note, show your work of all kinds. Bye. Bye.